Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krager, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. This week is the first of several conversations revolving around everyone's favorite divisive horror topic, that being the remake. Some appreciate them and some despise them, but my guests and I will be focusing on the remakes that do the original justice in more ways than one. And first up is a personal favorite of mine, that being Alexandre Aja's 2006 remake of Wes Craven's 1977 original Canyon Killer, The Hills Have Eyes, in which a family road tripping through the desert becomes stranded and the cannibalistic inhabitants of the hills begin to prey upon them. And joining me to chat about this early 2000s classic is BladeDisgusting.com's own Mike Wilson. Mike, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Jay. So excited, man. Yeah, we've been uh, trying to make this work for a while, so I was happy to have you and especially to chat about what's probably one of, you know, it definitely makes the short list of my uh, favorite horror remakes, especially from that early 2000s era. But uh, as is the tradition here at Daily Horror Habit, I'm curious, what was the first horror movie or moment that left a profound effect on you for uh, better or worse? Oh, gosh, you had asked me about this before <laughs> before we started. And I guess that the, the main thing is uh, the one for me uh, was uh, Joe Dante's Gremlins. It was kind of one of the it was one of those things that uh, I'll try to keep it brief. But uh, <laughs> back in the back, uh, back when it first came out, uh, I was I mean, I was again, it was actually there's a few actually a few years after uh, Gremlins had come out. And they had, at the time, they had uh, storybook adaptations of the film and they had little LPs in the back that you could play on record players. And <laughs> so I, for whatever reason, my, my, mom, my mom saw one of, the, one of the storybooks. She's like, oh, this looks cute and everything like that. I'll bring it, to, uh, bring it home for Patrick. Let, let him listen to it. And so that was kind of, my first sort of introduction into horror itself. And then of course, as I've mentioned before to you, it was from there, it was just kind of getting into the universal monsters, getting into ghostbusters and the list goes on and on. And now you can see the psychological mess that is me. So (laughs) anyways, (laughs) well, that's the thing that's so cool about, about this kind of like icebreaker question is that you get to kind of connect the dots between horror fans and see where our point of similarities are for our, you know, point of origin stories, if you will, with horror, right? And so, you know, Universal Monsters comes up a lot amongst guests and myself, and then seeing which films we kind of became knowledgeable of either through recommendations or they were released at the time when we were kids or, you know, somebody's older brother or an uncle or somebody says, oh, hey, I've got this great movie. And then, you know, much to your uh, parents' chagrin most of the time, right? The idea that, why are you showing this to them? This is going to, you know, pollute their minds. But really what it's doing is, you know, setting us up for a lifelong love of genre and whatnot. No matter what sort of sub-genres we maybe gravitate towards, it's nice to kind of, again, find that connectivity uh, tissue of horror that seemingly we all have from uh, similar similar uh, starting points. Oh, no doubt. And I mean, 
I, I can remember, you know, when I did find, uh, eventually, I, I did see Gremlins uh, a few years later, but then also uh, getting the DVD. Even that's old now. Jeez. Anyways, <laughs> I remember I remember Joe Dante uh, w- yeah, during the commentaries. He's like, you know, he was talking with Steven Spielberg and the executives and they were like, oh, merchandise, merchandise. And so, again, that's <laughs> sort of, it was just sort of that was some of the merchandise that I just ended up having to come upon. And uh, yeah, and it was weird because, again, the the adaptation i mean it was done for a young reader but the lp uh i can't remember for the life of me if, if they actually had uh uh you know zach galligan if he became doing the voices or if they just had somebody else doing it but i do remember uh the one again i it's good that you clear that you did you prefaced all of this with spoilers i mean Anyways, but but I do remember when uh, the last book had talked about, uh, I mean, it was just, again, just went through the whole ending. And it talked about how when uh, they managed to open the skylight and get exposed striped to sunlight and the sounds that they made on the that they made on the record, it was kind of it, it was kind of, they were. They were appropriately disgusting, but they described. Uh, but it was the they said like, sunlight poured into the room. Uh, Stripe screamed as his skin started to crack and blister, and he started to melt like a candle. And it was just it's like holy <laughs> crap, that's so awesome. <laughs> and then of course years later, uh, when I finally watched the film, it's like okay, that's kind of, it's not quite what I what it was, but I mean still it's just like oh this is still pretty graphic and disgusting, but it's just <laughs> it, it's. It's weird how the, it, that uh, again, just sort of having the uh, the audio description of what's transpiring rather than actually seeing it for yourself. It just kind of makes it goes along the lines of uh, just the way that literature can really play with your head and make things worse. You basically again just playing with your imagination and just making it into something that you totally would not expect which yeah which is which in some ways is kind of disappointing because it's like you did want to see you did want to see striped skin start to blister and crack and everything like that (laughs) in a weird way but whatever well tie-ins are one of those things that i would hope would be making more of a resurgence right whether it be like you still do get novelizations for different films whether it be horror or not right but Mm-hmm. A majority of the time, it seems that sort of tie-ins or novelizations are always reserved for these days the really like mainstream horror franchises or mainstream films or series or whatnot. Which you know, it's nice that you still get to kind of have these things that are maybe are largely viewed as trivial at most, but at the same time, like collectors, and then you know that could be your introduction to something. Like who knows? Maybe novelization, like you kind of had, would be the introduction to actually like seeing a horror movie when you're of age or just in general, Mm -hmm. like maybe somebody grows up in a household that doesn't want to read, uh, doesn't really watch a lot of movies. So they're like, Oh, well here's a novelization. They read that. And again, like it's all coming back to sort of like planting those horror seeds early on and then seeing what they actually end up sprouting into. And more often than not, it ends up turning into a, uh, a lifelong love of film, like I've said. And that kind of has been the general consensus again with like these types of questions and being like, well, as a kid, you know, whether it doesn't really matter what medium it is, right? It's more about, okay, here's an an introduction to something, however brief or graphic it may or may not be, 
right? There's something about it that kind of like taps into interests of kids at a young age, or it's intriguing, or like in my case, it's unlike anything else I'd seen at that point, um, which then makes you kind of like curious and hunger for the thing that you're not supposed to have at that age and whatnot. But uh, I guess going from that into generally talking about remakes, and you know, I mentioned at the beginning, like remakes this day are still incredibly divisive, and if not more so, it seems like that kind of stigma surrounding them is never truly going to go away. I thought that it kind of would have you know, evened out a little bit in terms of people not being so hypercritical about the announcement of remakes before, you know, we even see a single still of it. Um, but I'm curious for you, like, what is your general take on remakes? Are you a fan of them? I mean, granted, we're here to talk about a remake today, but <laughs> like, generally speaking, how do you feel about horror remakes? Uh, that's actually a good, really good question. Uh, generally, I was kind of, again, when I was younger, I was kind of the whole, I was with the bandwagon of, it's like, oh man, why are they doing this? this is the first version mm-hmm. of the classic and everything like that. And then going, as I got older, it was kind of, it was a case of, you look at some of my favorite films, like David Cronenberg's The Fly, John Carpenter's The Thing. And you start to realize like, well, those are remakes. So, and the originals are kind of, I mean, they're classics in some regards. I mean, they're kind of hokey. So, and then uh, I guess this is, it's a case of, I boiled it down to the remake has to do something to either modernize it or add something new to what was already there, to take it in a different direction. Otherwise, you end up with something like the Psycho remake, which is a shot for shot remake of the original which is why would you really want to do that when you're just again if you want to watch the original psycho watch the original psycho right. rather than the remake and really just vince vaughn just like whatever <laughs> anyway, that once that one scene when he's whatever anyways <laughs> but but uh the uh no, I was, I've kind of said, uh, as I said, just they have to justify it in some way, shape or form. And it, it, again, it depends on the, the film itself, where you have, again, going back to the very first, uh, the one that at this time that really sort of kind of started the whole uh, remake craze was uh, Marcus Nisbell's uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. And it was kind of, it was case of, okay, why are they doing this sort of thing? Why are you just, Toby Hooper's classic is a classic. It still holds up. I mean, it's not, there's not, it was beautiful in the fact that it was frightening but it didn't there was hardly any blood if at all in it but that's what that was so that's what partly what made it so clever was the fact that it was just it the atmosphere and the look of the film and the the quality of the characters that all combined to make it you know a really frightening experience that still to this day is very surreal uh and quite shocking when you think about it, but then of course, once uh, Marcus's film came out and you saw, Oh, okay. It can, he took it in a different direction. He changed things around. He 
obviously added a lot more gore to it. And he did it in such a way that, uh, that respected the original's intentions, but also added his own. And it really was, again, as you, uh, as you said, with, uh, with regards to Aja's The Hills Have Eyes, is one of the better remakes, uh, modern remakes of horror films. So, I mean, to, again, to, to sum it all up, it has to, they have to do something with it. They can't just do a carbon copy. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's largely how I feel about it too. Like I've never, never really understood the mantra of, you know, you can't remake them like that notion. You can't remake a classic movie because we right off the bat, we have countless examples of where essentially the remake has eclipsed the original in many ways, right? For exactly, you know, it's that's not a stretch when you're talking about The Thing or The Fly or some other films. And at the same time, though, you know, the hesitation to want to entertain a remake, you know, I've never understood that when people are like, well, it's not in line with the original or it's different or it doesn't resemble, you know, the original ethos of the original film. But I've, I've always subscribed to the belief that, that that doesn't matter because you could just go back and watch those films. Like the, nothing that is done in the future is going to change what the originals succeeded at. And mm-hmm. like you had said, if anything, I w- like personally, I want them to always take bigger swings with a remake. I want them to try something new, something that's completely different than the original, because otherwise it ends up more than likely as like a shot for shot that is always going to be inferior because, you know, the original is notable for so many reasons, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with Psycho, the notion that you would just play that and as like just a straight shot for shot horror remake, how you think that you could ever sort of capture the magic of the original. And, you know, granted, I haven't seen that, but from everybody I've talked to and, you know, now, now hearing from you, like it is a shot for shot remake that doesn't necessarily expand on that original story. It doesn't have a new kind of slant for the characters or their predicaments. And it seems to just rest on sort of the laurels of past successes while not actually, you know, forging its own identity, which I would find to be like the biggest misstep. Even something like, you know, Nispel's Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, which I'm more of a fan of, I think, than most, you know, that doesn't necessarily, it's not too many steps removed from being shot for shot in some regards, but at the same time, like you'd said, I find that, you know, the increased amount of gore is capitalizing in a way that, you know, was never the intention with the original and, you know, it was probably out of, you know, Hooper's original uh, scope just because of the scale of that film, mm-hmm. right, of the original. So capitalizing on it in a way that perhaps Hooper would have done if he could have at the time, but also like he crafts a really great aesthetic for that movie, I think, like the way it looks, he captures the sort of the tobacco stained, sweaty backroads nature of that setting in a way that is, you know, different than Hooper's, but at the same time, it's kind of capturing another facet of that world, um, which I thought played really well, considering, again, we hadn't had a Texas Chainsaw Massacre that kind of was playing it between being shot for shot and, you know, taking some liberties, perhaps creatively. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because, you know, thinking about the specifically with Chainsaw, the films that came before it, we're taking massive swings compared to the original and going in some pretty wild directions, yeah. which is fine. And, you know, that's a conversation for another day. But <laughs> it was kind of nice to have this 
baseline almost re-entry to a series, mm-hmm. but at the same time still capitalizing on that IP in a way that we hadn't gotten to see in its full, you know, chainsaw ripping glory. Mm-hmm. Well, and any anytime you uh, have an excuse to give Arlie Ermy uh, scenery to chew, I mean, that's that's a winner. I mean, that was, again, it was, I was just thinking in terms of that was one of the ways in which Nispel was able to carve his own niche was to give uh, to give Sheriff Hoyt this spot as a memorable character. I mean, obviously, it was ri- it was written perfectly for Arlie Ermey and he ran with it, which is kind of like he made it as his character as memorable as Leatherface, which was which was a nice play, which was a pleasant thing to see. I mean, we didn't have we didn't have the hitchhiker in well not exactly well you had a hitchhiker but we didn't have the hitchhiker in the <laughs> right. remake so i guess that was uh that was sort of uh again a case where this spell changed it up and it was all the more better for it absolutely but you know getting into the hills have eyes which this is actually the first time i've ever seen the original movie i had only ever seen the remake up until you know doing prep to chat mm-hmm. with you and i remember the first time i saw it i think i was in must have been in high school when I first saw this. And it was the type of thing where I was like so taken with an early 2000s horror movie, which, you know, by that point I was really into horror, but I wasn't necessarily like keeping up with modern horror. I was still playing catch up because, you know, (laughs) I came to actually having access to like basically an entire horror library for the first time around like middle school when I, you know, I had a group of friends that were older. So I would get like hand-me-down bootleg movies and things like that from them (laughs) discovering, you know, movies that my parents, not that they were super strict, but they weren't into horror or, you know, I'm also a kid. So they're like, no, you don't need to watch Battle Royale or whatever, (laughs) right? Not exactly age-appropriate films, but I distinctly remember watching The Hills Have Eyes remake and A, not knowing it was a remake right off the bat. Because again, still fairly ignorant in terms Mm -hmm. of horror history for me at that point. But more so just being taken with how brutally violent it is right out of the gate. It didn't have what felt like a real traditional buildup, so to speak, in that, you know, you don't know any of the variables right out of the gate. And immediately you see, you know, scientists getting slaughtered with a pickaxe and this horrifically hulking figure that comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then as quickly as it appears, it just disappears and kind of then leads you into the more, you know, domesticated family story life uh, storyline. But I guess just as a starting point, like initially for you, what about Aja's take works for the Hills have eyes and, you know, differentiating it from the original. Well, the, one of the things that I think that we need, unlike what you had, you had experienced, I had actually gone back when I first heard about uh, that Aja was going to be doing a remake of The Hills Have Eyes. I actually went back and watched Wes Craven's original, and again, like you, it was kind of a it was kind of an awakening for me because I was having to play catch up as well. And that was one of the ones that you know you heard here. You've heard well. I've we've heard Bruce Campbell and other people talk about how it was ferocious and scared the crap out of people, along with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And going back and watching, I know it's, I'm having it. I have to, uh, to clarify it's like, I'm, in order to be able to talk about the, the remake, you have to talk about the original. And the original, for me at least, uh, going back and seeing it, I can appreciate it for what it was. I, I would say it's a good film, but it's a, but 
in retrospect, I'm sort of say now it's it's admittedly dated and it's a little clunky in spots. I mean, mm. I appreciate uh, Craven and what he was going through with the idea of the commentary on the family dynamic and the idea of how one part of society values conformity to the all American the the all American ideas of family versus the barbaricism the barbaricism (laughs) barbaric nature (laughs) yeah i just invented a word anyways (laughs) barbaric nature of the the cannibals and how they how they both they both function as family units but they're so uh, but they're so different but also the fact that uh there was a sense of you can uh, society allows the for for those who haven't seen the original Hills Have Eyes, it's kind of a case of just again, as uh, Jay had prefaced at the beginning, you know the fan the the uh, the Carter family has to basically fight back against the cannibals, and they basically sink down to their level in some regards in terms of you know fighting back, and it becomes sort of it does essentially become a revenge flick when you uh, at the end of the film when you had Doug who essentially was this sort of placid sort of hippie sort of guy, but then he descends into having to take revenge for what's happened to his family. You kind of see how that's permissive permitted in our view. It's like, Oh yeah, this guy, this guy's family was entirely massacred and his baby was stolen. So you're allowed to sort of Mm -hmm. seek vengeance and it's Craven was sort of there was a commentary on how that's allowed you how you're allowed to go to sink to that level, seek revenge and become as savage as those that were had savaged you. But you're still in that society that's uh, part of that society that's valued mm-hmm. sort of thing. So that was that was I thought that was kind of that was fascinating. And then also, I mean, that's sort of like an analysis of the uh that not very many people will get into, but it was, but I just found that again, it was fascinating to look at it that way. The other thing was that the mood and just the look of the film uh, really did help. I mean, it was the look of the film, obviously like again with uh, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw, it has that grungy sort of look to it. I mean, the survive the, Prints that are surviving right now still have that sort of heavy grain that makes it look that again, I think they were blown up from 16 millimeter. I'm sure that someone's going to come in here. It's like, no, it was this, but, <laughs> uh, but no, it was the idea is that the, it looked so it looked rough because it, again, because it was rough. I mean, they were in, in the middle of the desert. So that added to the whole sort of, creepiness when it came to uh just the surreal uh, bunch of shots of again the cat the camper scene but then also just shots of you know papa jupiter doing his you know his monologue in front of uh big bob's head severed head uh while the other while the family is just you know like applauding and saying yeah 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 uh so all of that I think it was it's still kind of, it still disturbs on some level. I mean, again, just the the whole camper scene in both in both the original and the remake 
really do still pack a punch. I mean, the the well, the <laughs> the remake's not that old that it wouldn't be that still wouldn't have that. I mean, it goes to some extreme places, and you know, when I'm thinking in terms of the original film, right? It kind of introduces this concept and it runs with it, and it is a little clunky. Like that would be my one thing where I was like, "There's a little extraneous character interactions that don't really get to the point of it as fast as it could, perhaps." But at the same time, like even with that concept, he's able to capture really like a voyeuristic quality almost, right? Because you feel like these characters are being watched from almost the outset of the film. Granted, you do have that binoculars view, which quite literally puts it into focus for the viewer of what's happening. But you do feel like there is something always just around the next hill or on the next dune. Um, And then for the film to be as savage as it is, it really does kind of almost catch you off guard to a certain extent, just because of at least maybe it's how I view some of these, uh, some seventies specifically like horror movies that have not aged as well, maybe as they could have, or as their peers in some regards, but like it's a film that is shockingly savage at moments before, you know, kind of getting the viewer lost in that landscape that is so oppressive. And, you know, like you'd said in terms of the way the film looks, it quite literally looks like the real was left out smoldering in the sun along with, you know, the corpses of people that the inhabitants have gotten. Um, But I think that that's what I really appreciated even more about the remake, which is a film that I already held in high regards in that respect. But in having getting to see the original, I just and I watched the unrated cut. And even though it is a little bit longer and the film itself, I believe, is longer than the original, Mm -hmm. um, it still feels like it's a much more concise film in a lot of ways. I think that it introduces some of the mutants. It introduces the family, obviously. It introduces the gas station jockey. And it kind of just establishes all of these characters in a short period of time. But enough time is still dedicated to fleshing out specifically, you know, the Carter family mm-hmm. um, and kind of the dynamics between those characters. And I wouldn't say they're all my favorite characters, but they all really do a great job of establishing their place in the sort of hierarchy of the family, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, like Big Bob played by Ted Levine, who's great. And like you said, Doug, obviously, who's played by uh, Aaron Stanford in this, who's more like the what I assume Big Bob would refer to as a beta, right? The idea that he's like is not this authoritarian figure. or He's not very loud spoken or knows mm-hmm. how to do much, um, which they spend not a great deal of time establishing, but it's just it's nice though that each of the characters offers something, whether it be a different personality or an informing, you know, a relationship between other characters, rather than just kind of facilitating a body count. Which you know, this movie does have a pretty decent body count in it, but um, I think that the time spent establishing these characters and their relationships um, it makes their deaths a little more impactful, especially with how brutally. Uh, brutally some of their demises are mm-hmm. no it's it's funny that you do uh, that you mentioned that because again it's just sort of uh there is a sort of there is an element of in the original with regards to big bob being this xenophobic racist misogynist all that stuff there is that sort of sense and then once you get it once he gets into it you find out that he's w- way over his head with regards to the cannibals uh, and again, it's a, it's uh, it's interesting that Aja replicates that, but it's also the fact that he uh, that he does this from the stance of 
an outsider himself, the fact that he's you know French, that he's coming at this not as an American. And so he's kind of having to, he's portraying it as sort of what he interprets as what American sort of like the American stereotype in that, in that sort of regard. I mean, the, the whole thing of, again, when you say, when you said uh, with regards to uh, Doug being observed as a beta, I mean, it was, it was of the time uh, at that time where, I remember one line uh, that uh, Ted Levine said is like, uh, I can't remember who it was that asked them. It's like, why doesn't, why doesn't Doug like guns? And it's like, because he's a Democrat. And yeah. so that was, that was, that was sort of, and then you, do, but you do get that sort of the sense of, you know, they are sort of picking on him, uh, picking on Doug in that regard that he's not willing to conform to this sort of, I guess Republicans or I get, I know we're going to get trust those guys. I'm trying not to make this into an <laughs> us versus them thing, but it's, it's, but, and these are stereotypes. So it's kind of, it's a movie. So let's, it, let's just roll with it anyways. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it plays into that whole, the stereotype of the, the macho guns thing with, uh, with regards to big Bob, but it's interesting how, Doug sort of by the end of the film has sort of embraced this sort of almost like cowboy ask was to say Sergio Leone sort of cowboy where he again just sort of he paralleling the original in terms of you can descend into the savagery but that's okay because you're you've been wronged and you're looking for revenge sort of thing so I thought that was kind of, again, you do see shots of, it's funny how you, uh, you see shots of, uh, Doug with the, with the shotgun shooting lizard, all of that sort of thing. Uh, you know, picking up his glasses after he, after he's, uh, killed Pluto and just going after, uh, cyst with the, uh, with the ax to the eye. It's just sort of, it's weird how that just sort of just boom, boom, boom. It just turns him into essentially just, he descends into that and he's like, Oh, he's okay now. Sort of thing. He's like a big macho guy too, but really, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny that how that, uh, how, uh, Asha was able to, uh, to do that as again, an outsider from Europe. Well, I think that that's one of the, and it takes it back to a minute ago, something that you said, right? The idea of essentially, being forced into a situation that you have to succumb to and you essentially, your actions make you seem not all that different from those that are wronging you. Um, And I think that the element of the remake that I'm the most taken with probably, uh, other than, you know, the fantastic practical effects that we'll uh, get into, but it's more so the way in which Aja handles the mutant side of things or the irradiated people, right? It's not... It's different from the original. In the original, it was a guy tried to kill his cannibalistic child who then escapes the mountains and ends up having these basically like hill people babies with a prostitute that mm-hmm. end up, you know, continuing to eat people. I don't know how well that plays in a more modern film, right? It's kind of a little more far-fetched. It's a little more uh, outlandish. But in terms of this, again, Aja being a foreigner, right? He's being um, from France and him being able to take a part of American history and having it be the root of a horror story, if anything, mm-hmm. kind of grounds this movie 
more so than the original, which I found to be pretty remarkable considering, again, obviously it's a remake, um, especially the fact that like using, even though the location of where the story takes place and nuclear testing is in dispute, right? It's not 100% accurate, but they're using the backdrop of American history of using nuclear bomb test sites in our own country, right? And the ramifications of fallout and radiation and these things. And then also making a commentary on the way in which the government or society in general, like views maybe nomadic people, but just people that are removed from the main hubs of society and how essentially, right. In this film, the government says you need to abandon your homes or you're going to get poisoned by radiation. And well, they say, well, we can't afford to do that. And there's no process to get us to actually relocate. And so they're left to their own devices. And what do they do? They hide in the mines Their fallout begins radiating them and changing them. And, you know, the fact of the matter being that they've been abandoned by society, not even a second class citizen, but not a member at all, uh, they have to resort to cannibalism, right? Which I just love the way in which he's able to tie the U.S.'s own history and sort of governmental sensibilities into that narrative. And it makes it play a lot better, I find. And it's a more believable, you know, granted I don't know how long they'd actually be able to survive out there, but, you know, more believable for a movie that was just about, you know, incestuous, cannibalistic, prostitute children hunting people, right? Uh, I I thought that that was really, really clever. And it furthermore, you know, it reinforces the idea that the monsters of the movie are self-made, right? The, Mm -hmm. The country made them. Well, it's funny that you that you do mention that. I mean, one of the again, as you said, there is there's a difference between the originals uh, portrayal of the the hill people and the remakes mutants. There's a lot less dialogue uh, when it came to the remake between uh, the mutants, and I think that was that was wise in terms of. I mean, it's it creates a it creates an other. It's sort of it. It's a cla- It's I mean, it's an odd classic thing that they they do. There's less less you know about them. There's there's the more that unknown. There's the more potential for scares and everything like that. But then also when you look at how uh, again you don't actually see Jupiter in the film until near the end, which is I thought that was kind of kind of interesting. And uh, instead of that, you had uh, Lizard uh, as the main focus, which was as a sort of an aside. It was. Like nice to see Robert Joy, who plays Lizard, doing a 180 in terms of his characters because he played Charlie in Land of the Dead the year prior, and he was kind of he was kind of a faithful he was a faithful loyal friend uh, in that regard, and to see him do a 180 in this it was just kind of it's I give him props for that just being able to to have that contrast with him, but again going back to the idea that Lizard is the sort of like the you wouldn't th- you would think that he was sort of like the leader in that regard because again you don't see Jupiter uh, until near the end and he's not really giving orders or being a leader as uh, he was in the original which I thought was kind of which kind of, was kind of interesting uh, to see so it was just kind of one of those things that I saw uh, that was uh, again just sort of fascinating to. Uh, to note, to, to note, <laughs> no, is but when you see when you're talking about the uh, the prosthetics again, it's just sort of again, it was sort of you look at what again Michael Berryman in the original, he was kind of like the everyone was just sort of kind of they looked like 
they kind of they did look like mountain people but it was kind of like the hokey sort of you know like the false teeth and everything like that or they were wearing bones <laughs> or whatever and michael berryman again it was just sort of i mean he's he's embraced it i mean i know that he uh I'm trying to remember what what syndrome he had or not syndrome but uh genetic uh uh condition he has but he really mm-hmm. sort of was sort of the most bizarre looking of them and rightfully rightfully so he he's an excellent actor he's a great guy from what i've heard and you know other than that it was just kind of like they were all just made up to look like dirty you know like people with false teeth and everything like that mm-hmm. whereas with <laughs> the effects from by k and b it really sort of again emphasized the whole uh the nuclear fallout the idea of the mutants i mean uh just sort of like uh desmond as uh, desmond askew's character of big brain just like this giant hydrocephalic head of again greg nicotero <laughs> again it's just sort of it's one of those weird things that he's just like you know him for doing his makeup stuff i mean he has done acting i guess i mean I, the most memorable one that i could think of was like him being in day of the dead yeah <laughs> but uh no him wearing the neck brace and everything like that looking gross and getting an axe in his eye but again really it's just sort of the whole just sort of emphasizing that mutations uh the only one that i can think of is uh laura ortiz as ruby in the remake where she still is kind of you see her She's still kind of pretty, but then you just sort of see the side of her face. It's like, oh, she's beach. But there is still that sort of, there's still that sort of, you recognize her as good, but she's just a little different. Whereas in the original, it was kind of a case of Janice Blythe having to, you know, toss dirt on her face and everything, everything to make herself look less pretty. But you could tell that she was, good quote unquote i uh, i just found that, again that was i just found that kind of a, just a weird sort of a, a nice twist uh that aja was able to incorporate i think that that's a great point in terms of you know making the mutants more like others um i think it because that was another one of my hang-ups kind of with the original right is that they are clearly these hill people but they them retaining more of their humanity, like they mutants do talk in the remake a little mm-hmm. bit, but it's so much restrained compared to the original that I like that. I like the fact that, you know, it furthermore shows how much they've changed in that they barely communicate and half of the time they don't utter words. It's just like very guttural, right? Which is very primitive mm-hmm. uh, in a way, which I think fuels the overall just more oppressive nature of the um, original, of the remake rather. Like that film from the, you know, gore stuff aside, which I will still break down in a minute. Um, like it's an oppressive feeling film, right? The atmosphere from the get go, especially, you know, the music. Uh, I, I watched it with headphones on while I was revisiting it. And, you know, that track that has that siren that plays periodically, uh, that's supposed to be like a fallout siren, or mm-hmm. you can even hear like a Geiger counter kind of like cracking and popping periodically throughout bits of dialogue and just little things like that that are so well done. You know, the siren is obviously more uh, more pronounced, but just a little thing like the Geiger counter crackling in the background, but not having any narrative significance other than, you know, the overall thematic of it. Like just a little thing like that 
it can make a scene that much more unsettling and that much more, you know, sort of uh, ominous, if you will. Um, and I think that, you know, the way in which the movie's filmed as well does a great job of, again, kind of capturing that bleak desert landscape in a way that really shows both sides of it, right? Because it's like Sun Scorched Terror, which is, you know, done in the right hands. You look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like that was one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. And it's a majority of it's in the daytime. But in The Hills Have Eyes, you get to see the other side of that, which is probably one of the creepiest scenes in the movie for me when, you know, Big Bob goes back to the gas station and he's investigating and, you know, it's nighttime. And of course, you have that probably one of the best uh, shotgun blasts in all of was like such a fantastic <laughs> example of, you know, practical effects. It's disturbing. You know, again, shout out to K&B for that. But also, you know, Aja not being afraid to let the camera cut from that. Granted, I watched the uncut version, so it's going to linger longer than mm -hmm. they would have liked to have been in the uh, rated version. But at the same time, like willing to allow the viewer to stew in that really visceral violence and seeing the aftermath of it, uh, I think it furthermore just like makes the violence in this movie stand out in a way that kind of eludes a lot of slashers or movies that have slasher tendencies to them. Um, but in going back to like that nighttime scene with Big Bob, right? The way in which they're able to show the desert at nighttime when there's no natural light or there's very little natural light is that it kind of plays almost like a deep sea movie, right? And that you can only see yes. a few feet in front of you, but and you can hear what's out there and you know that something's out there that's coming for you, but you don't know when and you don't specifically know where. Um, and I think that, you know, furthermore, mm -hmm. that's one of the scenes when one of the hill people like starts chanting at him or starts catcalling him basically from the safety of the darkness yeah. to the degree that this like big macho retired cop takes that massive hand cannon he has and just starts like blind firing into the desert. Like that for me is an incredibly creepy, intense moment that isn't reliant on the practical work or any of the real prosthetics that the, you know, hill people have to wear for it. And it makes for a very memorable scene in a movie that's filled with memorably gory moments throughout. No, it's, and it's, it's kind of what, if you've seen, I know that you and I have watched High Tension before, Aja's previous film. If you've seen that and the idea of the uh, French new wave of horror, you kind of expected that in some regards that there was going to be that level of violence and gore. But you, at the same time, you're wondering how much was the MPAA going to let slide. And it's it's strange because I've only ever seen, like you, I've only ever seen the unrated version. And going back and actually finding out just what was cut and what was left in, it was a case of, again, the MPAA saying, okay, this many set, you can hold on this for this many moments, this many frames, but you have to cut it out at th such and such, which, I mean, it makes, it makes sense in that regard where you lessen, or in some cases you make it that much more upsetting. I mean, I, obviously the big scene that everyone that we all know the camper scene there were I mean there were the I know that one of the shots of the gun being pointed at the baby they had to cut they had to slice off frames from that or from the impact of uh, some of the the uh, the shots so it's really when you think about it there's not that 
there's not that much difference between the unrated and the rated cut, but what's the but with the unrated cut does have is just slightly more in uh, which I think it was as you said, it just kind of allows the, the viewer to linger more and to sort sort of become uh, absorbed into it. And yes, that shotgun uh, <laughs> that shotgun <laughs> that uh, shotgun uh, shot was just kind of just like, Wow, that was that was a good one. <laughs> well, it's the type of thing that again, you know, it a great deal of praise is always going to be hepped at the feet of uh, you know, practical work cuz that mm-hmm. is and you know, the movie did have some digital CGI stuff for specifically like the mutants, right, covering mm-hmm. up their uh, uh on top of the prosthetics and whatnot, but you know, other than that, it's an incredibly gory film that sells the gore in a way that, again, it feels very, like you'd said, French, uh, new French wave extremity movement, um, which I think is why it still feels like a standout from a lot of horror movies of that era, right? Because there is that nastier, lingering sensibility to violence in those movies that in the States, it feels like they suffered more at the hands of just like a lot of editing and quick cuts and moving around a lot and kind of move from one kill or one set piece to the next in a much sort of like a sprint almost instead of, you know, keeping it at this sort of a jog to that. Um, and I think that that's the quality in all of his films that it remains a standout kind of trademark of his, right? And you see that, but at the same time in his films, it's nice that he's able to make even moments that don't feature a lot of violence as nerve wracking or as tense or just uncomfortable. And again, this sort of aesthetic that he's crafted with, you know, the cinematographer and everyone involved in getting that feeling of unease and the kind of, like I'd mentioned with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? That kind of sweaty, uncomfortable nature of it where, you know, along with it being an intense movie, like you feel uncomfortable watching it uh, just because of like the environmental things that keep getting brought up again. You know, when I think specifically my favorite section of the movie is probably when he goes to uh, Nuketown, right? He's going through that abandoned uh, area that was basically like a false city for the nuclear blast tests and whatnot and you know just walking around and just the dust getting kicked up everywhere everything's coated in dust and it feels like a bygone era that was forgotten and abandoned right it's kind of like uncovering a a new civilization or a different civilization uh, which by some accounts you know it is again kind of fuels the movies overall kind of commentary on governments and how they view groups of people and how oh displacing them or you know, almost completely eradicating them if it interferes with our plans is not the end of the world for us. And I think the film really does capitalize on that in a great way. Mm-hmm. No, and another thing that you're absolutely right in terms of the uh, the abandoned uh, uh, testing town with how the mutants have just, again, just moved in and just, just taking up residence. I mean, why not? Uh, but the other thing that I've noticed, I mean, it's not, it's touched upon in the original a little, but in terms of the cannibalism, uh, I think it's more overt in this one, but it's not to the point where it's, it's like in your face. I mean, there are touches where, again, you just see, you just see Jupiter having, eating, you know, the guts of, uh, of someone or, uh, where Doug is locked in a freezer and, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these severed limbs in there. And it's just when you see that one shot, just like, Oh my God, gosh that smell must be unreal and then he's banging on and he's banging on trying to get out and 
it there's just it's just there's that moment of panic but then also just like the the vileness of the just being you can actually picture yourself in that situation no matter how ridiculous you know that might sound so again it's just again that all adds on top of the gore but I, the other thing, but again, I keep we keep coming back. I know I keep coming back to the camper, but I mean, I mean, it's obvious. It's it's iconic. But the thing that I you had mentioned earlier about uh, the choice of music, and the, uh, I think that one of the things that really sort of heightened the tension so much in that uh, during that entire sequence was again the music, and when Lynn gets shot. You just hear that one musical sting. You hear that one sting where Brenda, Brenda, you can see her face screaming, but you don't actually hear it. You just hear this one musical sting, and it's just like, oh, it's so unbearable. But at the same time, it's it's pure craftsmanship, if you want to call it that. That they, that Aja was able to just pull this off, and it's just, oh, it's it's unbearable to the point of like I can't watch it anymore but at the same time it's, you you're kind of it's like oh, okay what's gonna happen next sort of thing yeah and i want to take it back to that meat locker scene that you mentioned because that's one of my favorite shots i think in the entire movie when you talk about you know uh grotesque craftsmanship that is this movie right mm-hmm. and it's not only that you know doug wakes up and he lights the match and he realizes oh he's he's not sitting in an empty locker he's you know sitting on top of severed limbs and you can begin to smell the environment but again it's Aja's unwillingness to let the viewer leave uncomfortable situations in a way that is not just, again, you know, in a, an extended shot of him, you know, rolling around in arms and legs and thighs and all these things, but it's outside of the container, right? The camera starts to kind of like draw back a little bit and it just shows, you know, the lid shaking when he's banging on it. And of course you hear his screams that are getting more and more frantic, but it's the ways in which the camera just kind of occupies that space and goes, oh, this is the the ramifications of shoving a grown man into a, you know, a dismembered body uh, fridge or locker. And I just love that shot and how it just captures the it's outside. The baseball bat is like dancing on top of it. And then the slow pullback. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the slow so. pullback. Um, and it just makes for a nerve wracking experience that, you know, he's going to get out, but it kind of, <laughs> It instills a small seed of doubt in the back of your mind. Like, is he ever going to get out? Would I mm-hmm. ever get out if I was in that? And then, of course, just at the last moment, he gets out and gets to uh, then proceed to get the shit beat out of him by a gigantic axe-wielding mutant. Oh, exactly. But again, it was just the whole that whole sequence with uh, with uh, Pluto. It was, it was Pluto, just kind yeah. of it was just something that again he just something that. Imp- you didn't see, you mean, you saw the sort of the grungy sort of aspect of it in the original, but here is kind of like, it's been given the Hollywood polish in terms of they're busting through, busting through walls. They're having to, mm-hmm. uh, Doug is having to move, uh, to move a, a tub to order to, in order to block the doorway and Pluto just like busts through the, and it just, <laughs> it's, it really is sort of in, in that regard, just turned up from the grunginess the, of the uh, sort of low budget feel of the original. And just, it is sort of, it still feels sort of like, it still feels like pretty gross. I mean, they're just like Doug is still covered in blood and everything like that. 
and gets but his fingers chopped off. Oh yes, that that oh that's that was that's another one. It's just uh, it's always weird. Is you watch all this stuff and then you just you realize like anything that has to do with eyes or or fingers or toes mm-hmm. is just gonna like I say that as I say that as uh, Michael Bailey Smith gets a screwdriver driven through his foot and it's just gonna <laughs> you just he's like oh he screams it's just uh but no i mean and then of course he gets the gets the american flag shoved through the back of his neck and it's just like oh okay that's fine then (laughs) if but again it was coming back to the i mean we're still talking about the gore but uh it's just again there's that there's the little nuances again the sounds that the that they put in just to again just make it that much more disgusting uh with regards to again going back to Greg Nicotero's character assist when he gets the axe. I can't remember if he gets the axe in the back first, and then there's this all the cracking and everything, and then Doug finally pulls it out, and then he. he there's the one shot I just find so cool. It, again, going with the whole sort of it's okay to be a savage sort of thing. You see him turn the axe head around, and he just winds up, and he drives the the back of the axe into. Uh, Greg Nicotero's eye and it's just again you just hear moving it around and you just hear all the cracks and all this it's that it just adds to that much more to the disgusting nature of it and it's kind of like it's like yes <laughs> I don't know well, this is no I totally agree I think this is the, the element of the movie that allows all the gore and violence to play out like it does or give it more personality almost I think you know it, Again, when you compare it to the original, it's the type of thing where it's like, well, yeah, they had much different budgets. Not to say that the remake didn't have a small budget. At the time, it was like $15 million, I think, which is not a crazy budget. But at the same time, I find there's so much personality or texture to the movie, given that, you know, you've got this massive scale of the desert, and yet everything that happens feels very personable. Uh, Specifically, like each of the hill people feels distinctly different in some way. In the original movie, yes. you know, some of them might have had choice lines of dialogue that you remember this and that, but like I didn't find that they were as well defined either in how they look or their specific actions as it is in the remake. Um, and mm-hmm. I think back to like that fight with Pluto, which is definitely expressive and destructive, but it feels like he's the only one of the mutants that can really carry that out. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, it's in line with his personality, right? He's this kind of like simple berserker, essentially. And, you know, his body language and actions and abilities all dictates that. Same with, you know, Lizard, who is the one that speaks the most, but he is very much the tacticianer, right? He's very agile. At the end of the movie, he's using that spike strip as literally a whip. And it's just, it's a quality of the movie that I appreciate in that each one of the Hill people is almost like their own slasher villain that's defined by their specific look, but also like their abilities are not equal to those around them, which mm-hmm. I like. I think that that makes for scenes that don't kind of feel like they're retreading on certain other moments and whatnot. It kind of feels like we're getting a continuation of the uh, narrative and whatnot, but at the same time, they're evolving the types of you know bodily harm that can unfold in each scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and I totally agree in terms of it's just, again, going back to uh, the fact that Doug gets his fingers chopped off, uh, you know, Pluto gets a 
screwdriver driven into him. Uh, Big Brain gets his throat ripped out. For, actually, no, it was Goggle that gets his throat ripped out. You you don't actually see what happens to Big Brain, but he got his like it's again a case of less is more. You just hear uh, him being you know torn apart by the dogs, which is kind of horrific enough. <laughs> but but it's it's weird. I do I, uh, when you think back, and there wasn't that much. I mean, you did see there are certain shots where in the original that you did see blood. I mean, again, when uh, when Mars gets stabbed in the the original, you do see the blood spurt, and that's carry over again when Lizard gets the same thing happening to him uh, in the remake. But also, you don't see the damage done to Pluto in the original you don't see which is kind of they i think craven actually admits that it wasn't the best effect but still it means just a, a torn achilles tendon yeah is still a torn achilles tendon no matter how cheap it looks it still looks pretty graphic mm-hmm. i think that was i think that was the most in terms of their uh in terms of their gore other than again big bob's fr- uh roasted severed head but uh it's again just a again, indicative of how Asia was able to, again, push the envelope with his uh, French new wave of horror aspects. Mm. Yeah, and I think that that's why this film is, I hold in such high regards in terms of being a standout, not only horror movie, but horror remake, right? Mm -hmm. Is that it's an example of taking a director that culturally is coming to filmmaking, and even if it's a genre that, you know, they're going from, in America to a genre of, you know, French films or uh, American horror films, right? Like they are still going to have certain characteristics that are inherent to horror movies, but they're able to bring a cultural difference from one nation's films to another. And I think that that is a great example of the beauty of why remakes more often than not can serve as a platform for a creative. Hopefully they're proven at that point, but you know, even people that are maybe less proven in, in American market, giving them an opportunity though to take that cultural difference and have an impact on an American film, or you know, vice versa and whatnot. Uh, I think that that is what makes the idea of remake something that I'll always be excited by or intrigued by, right? Because there's that capacity for introducing something to no matter what nationality of film it is, but something that's less common or an attitude or a tone, right? And I think that you know, it's not to say that you have to have an American remaking an American film. But in that notion, like I would almost say like, it's better to have somebody that's non-American coming into this type of film because then they can bring their own perspective. Like, you know, it's not always going to be the case where you get somebody like Aja that has this view of American government and some American society. Mm-hmm. It makes a commentary and plays with American history that ends up making a narrative that I find to be stronger than in the original. Um, and that's something that, there's the capacity for in terms of all uh, horror remakes and whatnot. And that I think is why I still enjoy this film because it feels more cohesive, but at the same time, it kind of reinvigorates my, uh, my soapbox of getting on (laughs) just being like, you can't knock, you know, not every remake is great. There's definitely some stinkers. I'm thinking about like the fog remake uh, and we don't have to list uh, (laughs) the tens or potentially hundreds or dozens of uh, shitty remakes, but just at face value, kind of like decrying the idea of remaking anything, I still always find to be ridiculous because of, you know, movies such as 
the Hills Have Eyes, which kind of goes above and beyond in terms of not being shot for shot, but having moments from the original in it, but really crafting a new identity almost to it without rewriting what the Hills Have Eyes is or was. No, it's and it's funny because I'm thinking this entire time, is there that much difference? Again, this is this is going to be another sort of controversial topic, but is there any is there that much difference between a remake and a sequel when you think about it? Because you will have the same trappings, you know, the remake, you know, retreads too much of the original, or the sequel retreads too much of the original, or it doesn't tell anything new. Again, you can apply you can apply that to both. And, you know, which is kind of strange that people will, and I mean, they're not, the, that's not to say that they're not the same, they're not, but I think that there are some people that will end up, there's a little, people will embrace having a sequel more than a remake, because mm-hmm. again, it's just sort of, there's this sanctity of the original that you can't taint. But when you think about it, you know, if you have a sequel, you're kind of already doing that. And again, you do have, again, they're sequels. They can range the gamut from, you know, aliens to alien resurrection. <laughs> just, just stick, with it, stick with it that way. So it's, so they're not too different. And it's, but it's, it's kind of just strange that people will gravitate to the idea of that remakes equal bad when, you know, when they're more open to having sequels that, again, could fall into the same sort of uh, traps that a remake would. Yeah, I think that people are very kind of like particular about the ways in which they are accepting of a continuation of a franchise or even a character for that regard, like you'd said. I mean, at the end of the day, half the time remakes and sequels, you know, if they're handled in a similar fashion, they can feel almost interchangeable at times, right? And I think that sometimes people get to kind of just want to continue to stigmatize something. Mm-hmm. You know, they say like, oh, sequels are expected, but remakes or reboots are unnecessary and they change things. But I, I can never not, you know, come back to my stance on that, which is like, it doesn't affect the quality of the originals. If you wanted something more in line with the original, you should just go back and rewatch that. Um, and I think that otherwise, that's how series become stagnant, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think about, you know, the Friday the 13th remake, right, from 20, from 2009, I believe. Um, Like, I liked that more Mm -hmm. than I think some people did. But it's the type of film that, you know, I think it serves as a great reboot film because, you know, it kind of feels like it takes a lot of moments from past films and then modernizes them, stuffs it into one film. But the idea that, like, next year that, you know, if it had the rights issues, like, would people have the same feelings towards the sequel that came a year or two years later that they did about the reboot, right? Because so many people were so negative about the idea of rebooting it or they would say, oh, it's a remake. And it's like, well, you either want this beloved series or franchise to continue or you don't. And it seems like, yeah, you're right in terms of like sequels are more accepted than the idea of a remake or a reboot. But when your franchise has been dormant for that long, you have to have one before you can have the others, right? Yeah, and then you bring up a good good point because, again, going back to what I was talking about originally with uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, we ended up getting a sequel to that, or it was a prequel, actually, with The Beginning, which 
for me at least i remember watching that that was kind of for me it was it's been a long time since i watched it since i watched it and i did watch it it was kind of two very i say this now say this now because people had criticized aja for making torture porn with uh, the Hills have eyes remake which is ridiculous but <laughs> i mean yeah. the the beginning texas Chainsaw massacre the beginning was sort of a case where it really was torture porn just with, like some of the stuff that was in there but with the texas chainsaw massacre the beginning it was a case where you did have them trying to jump off of what the the uh the remake had and just trying to generate a sequel from that, which mm -hmm. again, it was sort of, it didn't go as well as we, as people had hoped. I mean, there were some fans of it, but I wasn't particularly thrilled with it. I rather much prefer the, uh, the two, the remake, but it's again, it's just a case of, again, you know, sequels can go, Again, we're kind of talking about talking about sequels now for all of a sudden, but it was just kind of sequels are very much like the remake. They can go and run the gamut, I guess. Sequels, right? So you have the reboot and then off of the reboot, they have what's essentially a sequel, even though in that case, it's a prequel, mm -hmm. right? But they're still able to experiment and play around with that. And I would imagine that that film was easier for people to swallow than the idea of the original 2003 reboot, right? The idea that after all this time, you're going to bring this back and it's going to be as good as the original, which is a ridiculous notion that people always seem to have whenever you announce a remake or a reboot. But I think the point is valid that, you know, the sequel afterwards was initially probably like, well, yeah, of course, they're going to make a sequel. And it probably did not have as much, you know, flack attributed to it. And you know, with the beginning specifically, I like the idea that they're able to basically just give more scenery for, uh, you know, what was his name again? The cop? I forget off the top Our, of my head. Uh, Sheriff um, Hoyt. Sheriff Hoyt. Yeah. So him getting to have more scenery to chew up, right? I was a fan of that. But then, you know, this is a personal thing. Them having to go and answer every single question that anybody had about Leatherface was kind of like, well, I don't know if that's really worthwhile. But again, at the same time, though, I just like that they were able to let a character that it had been maybe in the wayside or been an afterthought originally just to like flesh that character more out. And, you know, by all accounts, if you're somebody like us that probably watches more movies than they should or need to, right? <laughs> it's kind of cool that you get the sequel that doesn't succeed in some areas, but it does something new that you never thought about or you never really put much stock in. That's what I think is the uh, the value of not only remakes but you know sequels as well. Mm -hmm. No, and again, it's just sort of it's you take a swing and they try it, and if it didn't, if it doesn't work, it you know it doesn't work, and they just keep on going. But again, it's sort of going back to your what you had mentioned before with regards to you want the series to continue if you enjoy it. It's kind of you just have to keep your options open. It's it's sort of there's. I don't want to say gatekeeping, but it's just, there is a sort of there is a section of fans who will say it's like no, you need to do it this way. No, uh, no remakes, no prequels, none of that. We need to keep on going, making sequels. But you eventually run into a situation where you get you get stuck. I mean, if 
for lack of, you know, for obvious example, you know, Friday the 13th, you know, after part four, Jason is definitively dead. They tried with part five, a new beginning. They realized, oh, we can't, we can't go this route. And so they ended <laughs> up bringing back Jason as a zombie, which was cool. And it gave it, it gave the series new life then. And of course, mm-hmm. it, it, it was dis- it was thrown away with Jason goes to hell. But whatever, <laughs> there's still a lot of fun. But you get, but you get what I'm saying in terms of yeah. the whole. You have to to uh, go big and try something new, and it might not be sit well with some people. Uh, but eventually, the as with everything, the test of time, you people come around to it. I mean, again, just like. Halloween three season of the witch. Like that was people says like, Oh, why would you do that sort of thing? And now it's just seen as something like, this is really cool. And it is cool. Mm. So it's, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird thing when you think about it, that uh, just time just sort of, uh, just sort of, I don't want to say heals everything, but it just sort of mellows things out. But uh, that being said, the, the Hills Have Eyes too, uh, both the remake and the original. Those, bl- <laughs> I'm sorry, they just they're just really bad films. Yeah, I, that was going to be my last question. Are they worth checking out? Either the original remake, original sequel, or the remake sequel? But it sounds like that's not the case. No, well, I mean, it's Arrow Video. God bless them. They do they do their best to try and polish turds and. <laughs> they re- they recently came out with the Blu-ray for The Hills Have Eyes Part Two, which you know even Craven said this, that this is I did this to just for the paycheck really, but it was just right. as it brought back <laughs> characters that were originally definitively dead, and it was just like you know it was mixture of flashbacks, or even the dog had a flashback uh, <laughs> that the yeah it was just really bad. I mean the the sequel for the remake it's kind of it play it i mean admittedly the ending for the hills have eyes 2006 did leave open the potential for sequels and to this day i still love the teaser for the hills have eyes too just the it's just under a minute and I mean, if you get, you can go and check it out. I know that some people have already know what I'm talking about. You can go out and check it on YouTube. Just the whole sequence of, I can't remember who uh, the artist, the singer, but it's the song is insect eyes. And it's just this weird song that just plays as you're just on the ground and you see one of the mutants just dragging one of the bodies. And then all of a sudden, uh, you're, it seems as though the camera is one of the the point of view of one of the bodies and it just shifts and it's being dragged along and it just cuts and it's one of the it's one of the more effective uh, teaser trailers that I've seen in uh, recent memory and it's just which is just again it's just sort of it's the which makes the the film just that much more of a letdown. <laughs> I just, it's just really, it's just, yeah, it's not very good. There's a reason why uh, it would show up on uh, space here in Canada 
uh, on occasion and people are just watching. It's like, this is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, it's so to make a long story short, no, it's not really worth it to, to see it. Um, I'll have to check out that final clip though, at the very yeah. least. Oh yes. It's uh, which again, it's just sort of, it's very memorable. Uh, at least for me, at least that uh, teaser trailer. And then again, the, the eventual trailer that they did that did reuse the the song insect eyes i thought was really cool but again just the it just goes to once again uh the idea of a trailer selling a film that really wasn't that good (laughs) well i think that you know in getting to revisit and chat about the hills have eyes with you you know it really does instill the importance of i think remakes in general right again for all the things that we mentioned but also you know it allows it serves as basically like a stepping stone for reintroducing a beloved franchise i mean you could talk about the evil dead remake you could talk about you know any of the other ones maybe not nightmare on elm street remake but it's the type (laughs) of thing where you know the potential of you know not to say again that remakes always work. We know that they don't. We know reboots don't always work. But there's the potential for continuing something that's beloved. And, mm-hmm. you know, getting a filmmaker that has probably always wanted, you know, they're more than likely a fan of it at some point in their horror history. It's cool just to see talented people being given sort of like the keys, if you will, to this horrifying kingdom and see what they do with it. And, you know, we get... uh less than less than stellar results sometimes but then we get films like the hills have eyes which you know personally i think definitely eclipses the original uh and just capitalizing on that concept which was a sound concept but evolving on it somehow making it even more american than craven's own film in a lot of ways (laughs) Um, and i think that that's the true testament of why remakes you know serve an importance and they're not just these shot for shot cash grabs that feel very hollow at the end of the day kind of like trying to dispel that larger notion or stigma attached to them. And, you know, I think it's mellowed a little bit, but I still see a fair amount of it online and not just in uh, the horror side of things either. No. And you're absolutely right. Whether it is, whether it is just sort of constrained to the horror genre or other genres in general, I think that there is, again, it goes back to the idea of when you come to a d- idea of a remake, is it just for dollars or is it to just try to try something new to basically improve upon the original in some cases or to present a unique take that which is done if done properly by people who actually care about the source material uh, can make it a memorable film all that stands on its own or even as you said eclipses the original yeah well I appreciate you giving me an excuse to uh, not only chat horror remakes, but to revisit this film because it's one that I've been meaning to for a while. And uh, I had a blast chatting horror with you and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on. Well, thanks so much, Jay. It's, it's, again, it was just sort of, I had, I, had, uh, I had been meaning to revisit The Hills Have Eyes for a long time and it's hard to believe actually. I know that we're just, I'm just going to go off on another one, but it's just, it's hard to believe that the film is almost 20 years old when you yeah. think about it. But again, <laughs> oh, it's just, the, again, the fact that we're still talking about it today is again, a testament to not just that it's a re, uh, the fact that it's a remake, but again, it's just a damn good film on its own. So Absolutely, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, man. I appreciate you taking the time to chat. As always. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.